0: Thank you again. Now, we're going to have another scripture reading uh, before we have our message. This time it's Acts 26, some verses from that chapter. Verse 1, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Verse 22, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Amen. May God's word uh, touch our hearts today. I attended an online seminar uh, this last week, and I jotted down some notes as I was listening and I also wrote down some questions as I was listening for two reasons. Number one, because I, I guessed that there was going to be a question and answer time at the end, and there's nothing worse for a speaker when they say any questions, and there's a great big silence. Uh, and number two, because it helped me to focus, stop my mind wandering, helped me to concentrate. This morning, we are going to be looking at questions that were asked about the resurrection of Christ. You'll notice in this reading there are three questions that are asked about this subject, all part of Paul's defense before King Agrippa. And hopefully these questions will help to focus our attention on this really important subject, fundamental subject, as far as the gospel and the Christian faith is concerned. What's happening here in Acts 26 is absolutely typical and representative of the life of the early church. Wherever they went, whether that was the apostles or whether it was just the rank and file, they spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ, they spoke about his death, they spoke about his resurrection, and it's no different here. Even in a courtroom scene, Paul is under arrest. He's brought out of his prison cell into the courtroom to give his defense, and he still is speaking about these fundamental things. He's doing it in front mainly of two people. One is the Roman governor, a man by the name of Festus, and the other is King Agrippa, or to give him his full title, King Herod Agrippa II. Uh, Here's the first question, and it's Paul that asks it, and you find it down in verse number 8. He says, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Well, if the truth was really to be told, there were actually quite a few people even in that courtroom who found that whole concept and idea incredible. Absolutely incredible incredulous. And the governor, Festus, was certainly one of them. He, he was bewildered by really what he was hearing and what he was facing. If the truth be told, frankly, Festus was completely out of his depth. Now, just to give you a little bit of historical background, if you turn your uh, Bible back to chapter 25, verse 1, uh, you'll see there that Festus had only just arrived in the province by a matter of days, three days it says at that point. He's the brand new governor arrived from Rome, and he has inherited the prisoner Paul from his predecessor, a man who was called Felix, and Felix had succeeded Pontius Pilate as governor of the area. And so, in a short period of time, you have Pilate, you have Felix, and you have Festus as the Roman governors. And all this is taking place, not in Jerusalem, but up in the Mediterranean coastal town of Caesarea, which is where the governors took their residence. It was cooler because of the, the sea breezes. And he really just doesn't know how to handle this situation, and he's relieved when a courtesy call from King Herod Agrippa takes place, because Agrippa is well acquainted with religious culture, customs, and affairs. Now, again, a little bit more history here. There are a lot of Herods that are mentioned in Scripture, and he is one of them. Let me just try and help you here. His his father was the Herod of Acts chapter 12, who put to death James and who arrested Peter. His grandfather is the Herod at the birth of Christ who slaughtered the children, and his uncle is another Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. And this man is King Herod Agrippa II. He was a puppet king established by Rome. It was to both of their advantages. He, he really didn't amount to very much, but he, he was helping out Festus. Look at, look at the, the conundrum. Look at how he's toiling over this. Uh, Festus in chapter 25, verse 19, uh, as he talks about Paul to Agrippa, says, you know, the Jews have an accusation about this prisoner. And he talks about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And, and he's a, he has appealed to Caesar. And so, I have to write something to Caesar before we send them off to Rome, and I'm not quite sure what to write down about the accusation, and I'd be grateful for your help on this. And so, the next day, a hearing is arranged. And it describes verse twenty-three of chapter twenty-five, how Agrippa and his wife Bernice will come to her later, and with great pomp and circumstance. Uh, they enter into the hall with all the great men, the military tribunes, the prominent people, into this audience hall, and then Paul the prisoner is brought into it, and uh, his defence is about to begin. And what he does is Paul relates his conversion story. He talks about how he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, although he was hell-bent on destroying the church at that point. He says, if you follow the reading down through verse 26, um, that he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He'd asked the question, "'Who are you, Lord?' And he'd heard the voice, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. What will you have me to do? And he was given his instructions, and he wasn't disobedient to him. And then he taught how that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people, the Jews, and to the Gentiles. Now, at this point, Festus could restrain himself no longer. And in verse 24, he, he shouts out in the middle of the proceedings, and he says, Paul, you're, you're, you're off your head. You're, you're, you are out of your mind. You know, your great learning has, has made you mad. This is all complete nonsense. I can't believe that you're talking about this kind of thing. And you can just see him shaking his head and rolling his eyes as Paul gives his defense, and he talks about the resurrection. And it's at this stage, uh, in, in response to this outburst from Festus, that Paul asks the first question. Why should it seem incredible to you? Why should it seem incredible that God can raise the dead? Now, let me try and paraphrase for you how that question was answered. And it's perhaps a question that many people need posed to them today, because many people too think that even what is being celebrated across the country on Easter Sunday morning is something that's incredulous and incredible, and it's just madness. That question comes, though, why should it be incredible that God can raise the dead? If God is God— if God is the, is the great, powerful creator of the universe and creator of life, who sustains everything, who brings the seasons round, and the, the daffodils and the crocuses and the lambs and everything else, it's all due to the hand of God. If he can do that, why would it be incredible that God cannot raise the dead? I mean, If you were to take some of the people from the first century up into our day and age and introduce them to medical science and show them somebody who's in a diabetic coma and somebody jabs them with a needle and a little while later they sit back up again, almost like a kind of resurrection, if you had described that back to Festus and Agrippa in those days, they would have thought that was incredulous. They would have said you were out of your mind If these things can happen, why is it incredible that God cannot raise the dead? That's the first inference. Secondly, to paraphrase him, he says, you know, this is what the entire Old Testament Scripture has taught. The whole of the Bible attests to this. Moses and the prophets, and there are so many instances. You go back to Acts chapter 2 and Paul's uh, great sermon there, and look at all the quotations that he puts in there about the resurrection. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, or allow uh, me to see corruption. From the, the the Psalms, the Lord Jesus Himself predicted His resurrection and quoted, um, "Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the bowels of the earth." I go up to Jerusalem and I will will suffer there, and on the third day I will rise again. The whole of the Bible, from beginning to end, is not just talking about the death of the Messiah, but also about his resurrection as well. And then thirdly, Paul was a witness, and he was not the only witness to the risen Christ. Many who, who initially themselves were skeptics, like Thomas, I will not believe unless. And Paul and his great chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, goes down the list, even talks about a couple of hundred people at the same time, most of whom are still alive, were witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. And so he says, I am not out of my mind, verse 25. And this is not incredible. These things, they are true, And they are rational. And by the way, integral to this whole idea and teaching of resurrection is not just the resurrection of Christ himself. 1 Corinthians 15 is very clear. It interweaves this all the way down in the argument. It's also the, the resurrection of men and women. Because Christ has been raised... People will be raised as well. For the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ is the first fruits of those that sleep. And we can sing, Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future and life is worth the living. Because he lives. One of the verses of that hymn, I think, goes on to say, And then one day I'll, I'll cross the river. I'll fight, I'll fight life's final war with pain. And as the gates of death give, view, uh, give way to victory, I'll view the lights of glory, and I'll know he lives. It's got immense implication for the Christian. The Lord Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. But it has also implications for those who are not believers in Christ. There is a resurrection of the just. There is a a resurrection of the unjust. When Paul spoke in Athens to the philosophers there, he said that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given testimony to this in that he has raised him from the dead. So, to answer the question, this is not incredible, it's logical, it's rational, it's true if only people are prepared to have an open mind to read the Bible, to consider the message. In fact, he turns from Festus to the king, and he says in verse 26, the king knows about these things. They haven't been done secretly, not hidden away in a corner, and now comes his second question which is addressed to Agrippa. And he says to him in verse number 27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And this is the question, isn't it? Do we believe the Bible? Do we believe the Bible as the word of God himself with his message and its truth? And in particular, this Easter Sunday morning, about the Lord Jesus Christ being God the Son who died for our sins, who was buried, and on the third day He rose again. And not just do I believe the information, but do I believe in the sense that I place all my trust and my confidence in Christ as my Savior and my Lord to deal with the issue of my sins, my failings, my failures against God, and to forgive me. How pointed. You know, some, some would even say, how rude of Paul to kind of hijack the courtroom legal proceedings, to, to point the finger at Agrippa, to back him into a corner, and to to really ask him this question, to, to You know, metaphorically hold them by the lapels and say, Do you believe? Do you believe? I know that you believe, King Agrippa. And yet, I think, you know, we do people and we certainly do the gospel a great disservice at times by being too vague and not being direct and not making it clear enough that every one of us, of course, has to personally answer that kind of question for ourselves, because either we do believe or we we don't believe. And whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But again, there is a bit of a conundrum here, because Paul knew that to some extent, Agrippa believed, I know that you believe, and yet he is not fully persuaded, and he doesn't step forward to become a Christian. And the reason that happens is because of something else that affects his ability to process the information that he knows to be true. This is where his wife comes in. This is where Bernice comes in. Because Bernice is not only Agrippa's wife, she is also his sister. And they're living in this incestuous relationship that, in fact, at the time, according to Josephus, the historian, was was the scandal of Rome at the time. And this is the thing, this relationship, the implications of being a Christian, of following Christ, despite knowing it's true, prevents him committing himself to Christ. He doesn't want to lose her. He doesn't want to give her up. He wants to continue to be with her. And she is more important to him than following Christ. And that's why, despite the pointedness of that question, he does not follow through. And you know, that kind of thing still happens today. People who know, who've been brought up, who've heard things from the Bible because of relationships and life, narratives, they, they're kept back, and they hold back, and they don't commit in full, true, genuine belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. The final question, not asked by Paul, but asked by Agrippa, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? You trying to convert me, Paul? You know, in your little ten-minute, 15 fifteen-minute defence here in the courtroom, you think that's enough to persuade me to become a Christian? Some people have been persuaded the first time that they've ever heard the gospel message. You, you read about it in the Book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, and others. Others have heard the gospel for years and have never responded to it. But it is possible that in one moment, a moment of clear decision, that people can choose to confess Christ as Savior and Lord and place your faith in Him. And in doing that, you would become a Christian. You know, that was a derisory term in the first century. You know, it wasn't meant to be a compliment, little Christs, you know, these people. And today, of course, it's, you know, the water is muddied as well. What does that really mean? It's got political overtones some, some places. Some places just a kind of ethnic description. In the real biblical sense, a Christian, of course, is someone who confesses Christ as their Savior and their Lord and who follows our Lord Jesus Christ in commitment Uh, to him. It's like Paul saying, you know, I wish you were like me. Of course, apart from these chains, I wish you were like me. I am persuaded. I am convinced 100%, as he put it somewhere else, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day? And of course, it's good for us to ask ourselves that question. Am I persuaded? Am I persuaded of Christ? So, questions. Questions about the resurrection. Why should this be incredible? Do you believe? Are you trying to persuade me to become a Christian? Questions that should be answered, and answered by us all. Thirty-five years ago yesterday, I was asked a question. The question was, will you? And I answered, I will. And I'm happy to say that Angela gave the same answer to the same question. Uh, A little longer ago than that, I uh, stood in a tank of water, and I was asked some different questions the night of my baptism. And I was asked, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And have you received him as your personal Lord and Savior? And I answered, I do, and I have. And on my confession of faith, I was baptized. And I knew what that baptism symbolized, that it was partly about resurrection. Being united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. Dead to the old world, the old life, and living a new life. A life raised with Christ. A new life of righteousness and holiness. A life that should be like Christ. And at a practical level this morning, for the believer... I think that's one of the things that the resurrection should mean for us. Now shall we pray. Lord, thank you for this passage of Scripture, focusing our attention on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, these questions that have to be answered. Lord, we pray for for those who perhaps have never been persuaded who are not true Christians, that they will not think that this is something that's incredible, but will be persuaded by the reality of our Lord Jesus Christ, the living Savior, and commit themselves in faith to Him. And that for those of us who know and love Him and believe this, that we will live out the reality of what it means to have Christ in us, and having being united with Christ in his resurrection to live a new kind of life. And so, Lord, we we thank you for this wonderful morning. With all that it represents, we give to you our praise and our worship through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.